been a great occasion and I'm glad to be home. David! Amazing, it's one of a kind, you can't get anywhere else. Really happy and proud of myself, it's delightful, it's really, really good to be here. Thanks for all, thanks for everything. Andy Kenny, if he is returned as Taoiseach, will serve another five years and more. I can safely say that Andy Kenny will be Taoiseach of this country for quite some time to come. People involved uh, women and children, uh, a Palestinian family who had fled Syria, uh, risked their lives once, uh, a father pulling his 18-month uh, son out of the water and pregnant wife, and they were fortunately some of the lucky ones, but an estimated 200 people are still unaccounted for and probably will never know exactly how many people are lost simply because uh, people are crammed onto these boats. A parish priest in Suez will be the first to accept that many children are being baptised by parents who are not practising Catholics and have no intention of meeting their baptismal vows. And I don't think that's a healthy thing for society either. Just a brief listen back to the week in words there from News Talk Lunchtime. Alison O'Connor from the Irish Examiner joins me now in studio. Let's start with that that migrant crisis, those 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 awful, tragic scenes of people literally being fished out of the water by the uh, work of the Defence Forces there over the last couple of days. Um, what's your take on, on, on the whole thing? Well, I suppose for me, the most, if I'm just bringing it back to the personal for a minute, was listening to um, the radio this morning and hearing um, there was two naval commanders and one of them was a, I didn't even know he was out there, a childhood friend of mine, Kenneth Minahan from Bantry, where where I'm from, you know, so feeling immensely proud of that. And I think that the Navy has done really, obviously, quite incredible work. And then, and it's been such major news here, but then to hear throughout the morning as well, uh, Paddy Agnew, the Irish Times correspondent, saying how I don't think it's even making the headlines in the local papers in Palermo. It has become such a... Because so many people are being fished out of the sea, literally. Such an everyday thing. And it's incredible, isn't it? The, the, if you like, the cheapening of, of human life in that way, that it has just become something that happens. President Michael D. Higgins has been speaking about this in the last few minutes. Let's have a listen to what he has to say. The European response as a whole has not only been late but been grossly inadequate with Italy, Spain, Malta and Greece left struggling to cope with large influxes of refugees and migrants. This failure can only be described as shameful. He's got a point, hasn't he? Because I I listened to the Italian Prime Minister in the last couple of weeks saying, pleading with his European counterparts to say, listen, we we just can't cope. They're all arriving on our doorstep. We're going to have to take them all. We we just can't cope. Isn't there an argument for uh, a better um, allocation among other European uh, countries? Absolutely. And I mean, I'm del- it's the sort of stuff that Michael De Higgins is very good at and I'm delighted to hear, hear him saying it. And I mean, if you look at what's happening in the Mediterranean and the, the, the amount of people that Italy and Greece are dealing with, and you look at what's happening in Calais and you bring that back to you know essentially the Iraq war Mm. the instability there ISIS um, you know the whole thing is connected so you know trying they're trying to the Italians trying to respond individually or the Greeks or even France and and Great Britain so I mean it does I actually think that even it's another sign following the Greek financial crisis to me it's another sign of the EU not functioning properly but even wider than that I think it's almost going to take a UN response What do you take to when, when you hear you know for example Britain talking about perhaps sending the army down to down to Kent to uh, to make sure that migrants don't get through the Channel Tunnel, for example. Like I think that it's almost it's almost pointless because there there are now 
a huge amount. I mean, you hesitate to use word like waves and swarms and all of that because there are very negative yeah. connotations to that. But these people are clearly desperate and they're going to, they're not going to, the British army is not going to be able to um, to police or soldier every single, you know, point of entry. The fact that people are even still getting through the through the Channel Tunnel um, and they're not going to be able to stop people coming from, you know, going to Italy and going mm. to Greece. So there isn't really any logic there, uh, you know, attaching to the current response purely from pragmatic reasons. Even if you decide I don't want any immigrants coming, you're going at it, um, you know, totally the the totally the wrong way because it's 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 a very localized response oh, and oh. it's not going to. But I mean, I, you you have to look at the wider picture of like given that Britain was one of the countries that invaded Iraq, that's largely responsible for the instability in that region now. Well, the knock on, the, the, pe- the knock on, the knock on, and yeah. the knock on. There is a responsibility there. What, what about closer to home? We're taking 600 um, migrants, for example. Um, I suppose, A, is, is that enough? And then I refer you to the interview I did a few moments ago with the Cahirlach of Longford County Council, uh, Jerry Warnock, and, and, and they're taking an extra 20 uh, migrants in, 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 in Longford. And he's saying that, no, that's just not, we can't afford to take them because unemployment is already too big and it'll have a knock-on effect on, on the social system. And he, he doesn't want them going into Longford. So in a way we're nearly sort of washing our hands of it as well, aren't we? Yeah, I, I think it's really unfortunate to hear people speaking like that and using that kind of language. I would worry that when we look at the efforts of our, the sterling efforts of um, of our naval service, that in a way it can be a way of us salving our conscience, kind of saying, oh, here's, well, there's our contribution to this. Um, when in fact, um, like we were saying earlier, I think it's going to take a much broader, not just on mm. the part of Ireland, but on the part of everyone, a much broader What would you say, um, though, approach. if I... If I told you that the, the, the it, it would seem, looking at the screen mm. here, the majority of people texting in following that interview with Jerry Warnock are are on his side. Um, I suppose I'd say I, I, I'm unsurprised, but still disappointed. You know, it's yeah, not okay. that it's, you know, I mean, I'm not original in, 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 in bringing up this comparison, but we talk about coffin ships and Irish people and immigrants. It just shows, I think, an incredibly short memory on our part. Let me move along to something completely different now. Dennis O'Brien's solicitor yesterday served the satirical site Waterford Whispers News with legal notice over a piece it had, uh, it had published. Uh, your reaction to that? I I find myself having a reaction in the last couple of days to Dennis O'Brien that I never imagined. I'm feeling slight sympathy, pity even, because I think he's like somebody that's sort of standing at the top of a room roaring, I demand respect, I deserve respect, give me respect, and that people are just kind of tittering down the back and that no matter how many legal letters he uh, sends out um, to try and, you know, t- to quell the um, the this insurrection against him, as I presume he sees it, it's just not working. And I think when you start threatening legal action against satire, mm-hmm. it sort of shows the trouble you're in. And also when you even see, for instance, like Ross Carl Kelly on had this wickedly funny um, column in terms of that Ross's dad had started wearing um, Dennis O'Brien hair, Dennis O'Brien hairstyle, and he'd got a cease and desist letter um, saying your wearing of Dennis O'Brien's hair is a clear infringement of his intellectual property rights. That, I mean, on one level, it's... Uh, on one level, it's what? <laughs> well, let, let, let <laughs> I think me. of the word. But I think that he, 
it's it's counter look anyone is entitled to protect their reputation okay. I, I, you know that's fine but to my mind if i'm if i'm Dennis O'Brien and one of his people and thinking what's the end game here where do we want to result at the end of all of this where do we want to be how do we want people to look upon us i wouldn't necessarily start from here let me let me um put a, a devil's advocate point to you and, yeah. and and point out at this stage of course that uh, Dennis O'Brien is is um, uh, the majority shareholder in mm-hmm. this in this radio station but um he was in the news earlier on this week as well for taking an action against the committee on procedure and privileges yes. the Dáil Commi- committee on procedure and privileges over what Catherine Murphy said about mm-hmm. him in the Dáil so to play devil's advocate as i said um We've seen privilege being used in the doll by Mary Lou Macdonald, for example, and the CPP found against her and there was no disciplinary action. So how do you how do you weigh up the two there? Yeah, no, I mean, I could see how um, how he would make that argument. But I have also heard um, the argument made by people from academics in this area who don't believe that he that the the, the weight of, of of the law will be on the side of the of the of our TDs and of the committee on constitutional privilege. And I think that this is a st- when you uh, you know when you work in Leinster House, you cover politics and you become obsessed, you become political anorak, and you think this is what the whole country is talking about. The whatever the, the yeah whatever the yeah. political issues of the day and you realize then that they're not but i mean he has Dennis O'Brien has managed a bit of a coup in that now everybody is familiar with his you know, with his, with his case and the, the nuances of it. And I think that most citizens would tell you that they would be more comfortable with this being decided by their elected representatives, mm. you know, that by that decision being made there, that they would be more comfortable with Catherine Murphy being allowed to stand up and, you know, give the speech that she did, you know, uh, in terms of how that should. And I I say again, he's absolutely entitled to to take it to the courts and to see to see where that will take him. But I just don't know in the bigger macro picture, where is all of this going to end? There is certainly no recession going on for who, you know, for his, his legal team. It's <laughs> it's a bonanza. All right, let's let's uh, move to, as they say, something completely different. It is uh, National Breastfeeding Week, which we're, we're, we're all aware of, of course. Um, the latest study, I think, by Trinity Academics showed that only half of newborns here were breastfed. And this week, in fact, only in the last couple of days, News Talk's very own Dil Vikramasinha was uh, breastfeeding her son on TV3 on one of the midday programmes there. And that caused quite a bit of of reaction uh, on on both sides. Why do you think there is such a low uptake on on, on breastfeeding in this country? I was thinking about this last night and I don't know, is is it that we're prudes or perverts or is it a mixture of both? You know that. Explain. Well, if you think about it, uh, a woman feeding her newborn baby, or any you know her baby, yeah. is the most natural thing in the world. Mm-hmm. One would. How could you argue mm-hmm. with that? And yet, Irish people seem to just um, have a complete freak out when a woman takes out her breast. I was just saying to you to before we came her, yeah. on air, for example, I've just come home from Spain yeah. and it is not even, it's not even to a penny. It's just sort of so natural, so ordinary. Yeah, so that you I, don't... You know, you not see, in a restaurant, it could yeah. be in the square, it could be everywhere. I think that's part of it. I think the fact that there is, there's relatively so little of it that we, it, it's uncommon. And you actually have to be quite brave as a woman to go out there and breastfeed publicly. So but how do you also, change people's attitudes Look, it then? also comes back to the fact that, like I nearly, I tried to breastfeed my older daughter and I 
it, I can tell you it's the closest I have ever come to a nervous breakdown and I hope that it'll ever it'll, for the rest of my life yeah. that that's as close as I will get. My husband describes it as being like an Olympic sport in which you're asked to participate without ever having practiced, right? <laughs> and the pain of a bleeding nipple will go with me to my grave. Okay. So it's something, I mean, I was so keen to do it. It was like one of the major tenets of motherhood to me that I would, would breastfeed my child. But for starters, our maternity hospitals are so incredibly busy that the midwives don't really have the time. Uh, I, I do think that if men had babies and, bre- and were, bre- were attempting to breastfeed, they would be breastfeeding technicians 24-7 by the <laughs> side of the bed. But I'm afraid okay. you're largely left to go on with it yourself. So I admire Dill for, um, Dil, for I, what she did. She's just texted, she's tweeted yeah. rather, in the last 24 hours, hashtag breastfeeding has been compared to urinating, defecating and sex in public. She says attitude to women's bodies needs to change, which is, you know, this is the point you're I mean, making. I'm more inclined, you're more inclined to go towards the perversion than the prudery there yeah. then, aren't you? you Alison, we've got to leave it there, but thanks indeed for, for uh, coming in and talking to us about the uh, news that was this week. Alison O'Connor there, of course, from the Irish Examiner. It is Friday, uh, so on News Talk Lunchtime, that means we go to our man in the States, Kevin Cullen of the Boston and Globe to see what's happening in the USA. Afternoon to you, Kevin. How are you, John? I'm good, thank you. Let's begin with what was compulsory viewing, I suppose, for some in the uh, US last night. I didn't see it myself now because it was the middle of the night here, but it was the first Republican debate in which Donald Trump seemed to have stolen the show, I suppose. It caused controversy once again. Candidates were asked if they would pledge not to run as an independent against their party. Here's what Trump had to say. I cannot say I have to respect the person that if it's not me, the person that wins. If I do win and I'm leading by quite a bit, uh, that's what I want to do. I can totally make that pledge. If I'm the nominee, I will pledge I will (laughs) not run as an independent. But uh, and I am discussing it with everybody, but I'm you know, talking about a lot of leverage. We want to win and we will win. But I want to win. As the Republican, I want to run as the Republican nominee. So tonight you can't say if another one of these... This is what's wrong. I mean, this is what's wrong. He buys and sells politicians of all stripes. Look, he's already hedging his bet on the Clintons, okay? So if he doesn't run as a Republican, maybe he supports Clinton or maybe runs as an independent. Okay. But I'd say that he's already hedging his bets because he's used to buying politicians. Well, I've given him plenty of money. Kevin, Donald Trump there keeping all his options open, I suppose it's fair to say. Will that work against him, do you think? It'll work against him in terms of sort of Republican Party stalwarts who don't like the idea of him not being a team player. But, you know, that he's, this is just par for the course with him. He's setting his own course. And the people that like him like him because he says things like that. I have to say the the thing that I found most striking about what he said last night that really differentiated himself from the rest of the, the, the candidates is that he believes in a single-payer health system. Basically, he believes in socialized medicine. I thought that would get the uh, headlines, but it really didn't take off here in this country the way I thought it would. And what what, I mean, what, what, you know, the other... Sorry, what way was the, would the debate have, have gone? And Sorry, what I mean is what way, you know, are, are the public reacting to this debate if indeed they're reacting at all? Well, I, I haven't seen the numbers yet. My sense, particularly for something in the middle of August, the numbers are going to be very high in terms of ratings. Uh, I think a lot of people watched it. But it was also sort of like a clown car. It looked like Fagan's at closing time and Birdie was buying. There were just so many people on the stage. And it was hard for anybody to make serious points because there just wasn't enough time and there were too many candidates. That said, I think it was it was decent political theater. 
And I thought Megyn Kelly actually probably put Trump in the wor- in the worst possible position because she asked him about some of the remarks he's made about women, and uh, mm. basically she suggested he was misogynist. And he didn't he didn't basically back, he didn't back down at all. He said he tried to make a funny line and say, "Oh, I only say those things about Rosie O'Donnell." Yeah. And she fired back and said, "No, that's not true. You said it about other women." And uh, I think he was very uncomfortable in that. And then that's going to be the other thing that, that exposes Trump in the end. His, 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 uh, the difference between what men think of him and what women think of him in the Republican, you know, in the Republican ranks is enormous. He is much more popular with men. Jeb Bush is seen as the frontrunner, I think, or certainly has been mm-hmm. in recent days for the Republican nomination. How did he fare? Or, or indeed, did any of the other candidates emerge as, as potential winners from, from this debate? Well, I think Bush, what he did, what he needed to do, he did. He he appeared, you know, like an adult. He didn't he didn't get down into the gutter. He didn't do any sniping, and he just tried to. He kind of avoided, you know, getting in, into sort of Trumpisms and things like that. And I think that's what that's the. It, it reminds me. To, I was talking with you and 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 Jonathan about this, you know, four years ago. That that when it was really crowded, Mitt Romney, you could see he was the only serious candidate. Mm. He was the only one that would emerge. And it kind of feels the same way when you're watching this. You get the impression that Jeb Bush will eventually emerge from this unless something very dramatic happens in the next year. And usually in these things, something dramatic doesn't happen. Well, you see where it's going. And it's about the money in the end. Jeb Bush is going to be raise a lot of money. Well, of course, and Donald Trump has no end of, of uh, he's, a, he's an endless pot of, of money. But anyway, let's, let's yeah, move on. Money away. isn't a problem with Trump. He's got many big yeah. problems. Let's money. move on to another story, Kevin, that's happening um, this week. A man brandishing an axe and a pepper spray was killed by police after attacking people at a cinema in suburban Nashville in Tennessee. Um, we can hear a police officer here describe what happened at the scene. The gunman, the suspect, raised his weapon toward that officer, pulled the trigger. That officer then fired on the suspect and then backed away from the theater. Kevin, this this comes, what, two weeks after that shooting in Louisiana. What What is the latest story here? Well, this fellow, unfortunately, was mentally ill. He had been hospitalized at least four times in terms of commitment. that the, the state actually put him into a mental facility because he was so ill. And this is, you know, after that last one, John, I about three days after the shooting in Chattanooga, in which uh, I'm sorry, the shooting in Louisiana, yeah. in which uh, two people were killed. My, I asked my wife, "You want to go to the movies?" And she said, "No, I don't want to because I think there'll be a copycat." And I said, oh, "That's crazy. Why would you? You can't live like that." Turns out the wife was right because that's that's what appears this this has been. It's it's somebody with a deep mental illness. Now he had a pellet gun. It was not an actual, you know, it, it was not a gun that could actually technically kill anybody, but it almost looked like it was suicide by cop. It looked like this guy wanted to die the way he the way he engaged. And he, he had a hatchet which he actually hit somebody with, but it looked like a suicide it looked like a, a copycat attack. And and you know, it, we're gonna get to a point here in America that in which we're probably gonna have to have metal detectors at our at our cinemas because this stuff just seems to happen with a regularity here. It's it's frightening.